I just laughed earlier. I saw the typical 4th of July tweets. Somebody curated a bunch of them, you know, that like, happy 2016th birthday, America, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yo, it is so bad. Hi and welcome to episode 48 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the panel I'm joined by Len. Good evening everybody. And we're joined again by Rob Stutterford. How's it Rob? Hey guys, how you guys doing? We're great, great man. Great. Now Rob, so we had you on episode 27 I believe. We recorded that back in February. It feels like ages ago. It does. And and then we had a, a good chat about closure just the language and all the tools around it. I think it was, for me, one of the better shows we did. I remember my mind was blown, especially towards the end when we got to Datomic as a database. And for tonight's show, um, we're hoping to just a bit explore what Datomic is and how you got there. And I think it's very interesting to, to hear the story, what goes in making a decision for persistence that is not a relational database. But before we go down that path too far, for, for folks who haven't listened to the previous episode, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm the CTO for a little company in Cape Town called Cognition. Um, we're an e-learning company focused on corporate learning. Um, we've been going for just over six years now, um, coming up on six and a half years uh, next month, um, which is pretty amazing. It feels like it's been at the, you know both 10 years and a couple months. It's one of those weird time distortion things. Um, and we've been using the closure stack, full stack, um, you know, closure, closure script and datomic for about half that time, just a little bit over that. And uh, yeah, we've been having an absolute blast with, with these tools so far. Oh, that's uh, that's something that we're also starting that journey of now is getting into closure and also starting to use a bit of datomic. Um, and one of the things I'm super curious about is like. That journey that led you, as I said, to to using a different database, and uh, you know what 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 was involved? Why why Datomic? So it's actually a bit of a non-story. I'll be honest. Um, the 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 real story um, to tell is actually um, pre- preceding to Datomic. It was choosing Closure and Closure Script. Um, that was where all the big um, you know mind blowing revelations occurred. Um, once I dis- discovered Clojure and we started using it, trying to solve you know real problems, and we just managed to solve problems very very quickly and very easily, um, it was a, a super pleasant uh, development experience, and we we felt like we were grappling directly with our problems rather than fighting frameworks and tools. Um, we were already solidly bought into the paradigm, you know, the the, the simple versus easy, the keep things simple, keep things broken apart. Um, kind of mindset that the closure community esconces. Um, and at the time that we were actually choosing um, our full stack, we were already committed to closure and closure script, but there was this big gaping hole in the database story. Um, we basically had Postgres, which is not a bad choice at all. It's a really, really good, um, uh, you know, um, a general purpose database. And right. we had at the time, and now this is, you know, over four years ago, MongoDB. Um, and we were teetering on the edge of using MongoDB because at that point we didn't really know much about you know either of them. Um, right. And then this this little upstart company called Think Relevance um, announced that they've got this new AWS database. Um, and once we did put two 
two and two together and realized that it's by Rich Hickey, um, who made Closure and, and all the other cool tools we were using, we pretty much decided to you know play around with it for a couple of weeks and see where we ended up. Um, and I think we made our mind up within a half a day because it was fitting directly into the paradigm that we had just so totally bought into. Um, and you know when we when we sort of took a, a a small rational step back and said okay but what about our other options um, the other the choice was clear we we need mm. to go with this immutable first functional database okay so yeah, maybe that's a good place to just sort of contrast Postgres um, and Mongo with Datomic like in what way does Datomic differ from those two guys um, so the key difference with Datomic is that it's an immutable database. Um, Instead of uh, giving you places to put things, and then whenever you put things into the database, it overwrites what you had there previously, it would actually just append the new facts that you have onto kind of the end of your database. Um, and whenever you query Datomic, you're looking at what Datomic has calculated to be the now version of your database. But the key thing about an immutable database is that you can go back in time. Um, and in fact, in Cognition, you know, our database goes back to our launch day on the, the 15th of January 2013. And we can literally go back in time and look at all the transactions and the state of our database as of each transaction, you know, between now and then, all 38 million of them. Wow. Okay. That's, that's super interesting. So I think one of the first sort of queries that, that pops into my head when I, when I think about that is that that's going to use an inordinate amount of space, right? It certainly does. Um, but how much more than, like, say, an ordinary database, you know, say, compared to Postgres, for example? So I, I don't really have an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but I can tell you that our, our kind of our version 1 stack, which was a, a little PHP um, system, um, had a 20-megabyte MySQL database, and our current database backups for our Datomic system are at about 14 gig. Okay, wow. But there, I mean, there's there's many years worth of data difference there as the, well. There's many years worth of data difference. We've done some things um, suboptimally in terms of how we we store past data. So we've got lots of text blobs where we don't actually diff anything, like Git does. Um, you know that kind of thing. But it's also um, a, a, a key um, thing about the, the Datomics design. They've explicitly traded off storage for compute. They've said, well, you know, st storage is cheap. Compute is always expensive because you're, you know, you're against the clock. Um, right. So let's let's make it easier for the database to find things and to do things um, with a more kind of relaxed and laid out um, storage um, and optimized for compute. Um, and it certainly works. Okay, that's a that's a very interesting approach. So. One of the things I'm beginning to realize is that in almost any database I build, I want to keep track of the history of things. And that seems like such an important thing that most databases unfortunately don't do. Um, I, I can go into a SQL database and say, you know, update customers uh, with some, you know, set something and, and a supply aware clause. And it comes back to me and it says, uh, you know, 10 records updated. And I, I've now kind of like lost what, I, I, I can't ask the database which which records were updated really. And and I can't ask what the previous versions of that, those records were. And I believe that's one of the like key features that, that Atomic has is that I can sort of go back to it and say, oh, hang on, I'm, I'm not sure, too sure about that update. Can you tell me what the data used to be 
and and Datomic is able to give me like the old versions of records. Precisely. So whenever you transact something into Datomic, it actually gives you a complete list of all the changes it made in that particular transaction. Um, and that includes um, asserting new facts as well as ret- retracting old facts. Um, and the, the, the thing about that, that transaction data that you get back in that transaction uh, result is it's also stored in the transaction log, which is something that you can just directly query. Um, so you, you'd be able to inspect the full, basically, change set, change set for your entire database going back to the beginning of time, transaction by transaction. Okay, that's super interesting. Now, how different is the sort of query update insert model to, you know, how, how much effort do you have to go through mentally to, like, switch across to, to using Datomic, or is it, uh, is it pretty close to what people are, are used to with the relational database? It is quite different. So the, 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 on, on the query side, there are a couple different um, uh, ways to get at your data. You can do very low-level you know, walks of your index where you literally just start at one point in your database and keep walking until you've reached the other part, uh, you know, receiving um, a pointer to kind of records or rows in inverted quotes. Um, and then there's higher-level languages, um, the main one of which is called Datalog. Um, and this is um, a seriously cool little language that taught me a lot about um, constraint solvers and logic programming. Um, Datalog is actually an implementation of, of this, you know, this, this logic programming um, concept. Um, and you basically, in, in, in terms of you know, relational queries, you essentially define a set of constraints over your data and fill in some invariants, for example, which user ID you're talking about or which search term you want to search for. Um, and then this constraint solver will use all of that information to go and resolve you know all of the kind of the unanswered um, uh, variables in your query um, so that the, the query side is is does take some getting used to um, it is quite different but it is definitely simpler than than what you may be used to with SQL in fact if you can do SQL you'll learn data log very very quickly um, and then on the transaction side writing writing updates to Datomic um, I would contend that's actually very, very simple. All you're doing is constructing a very simple data set that um, you hand over to the transactor to, you know, to, to enact, um, and it will you know, put that stuff in your database. So, so I guess to answer your question, it depends how comfortable you are with Clojure and Clojure's data structures. Um, if you can get around with that stuff, um, you'll be able to get around with Datomic, no problem. So by closure data structures, you're talking about things like maps and vectors and those sorts of things, right? Yeah, kind of the basic four, maps, sets, vectors, and um, lists. Okay, okay, great. All right. So I'm curious, just for folks that might not be using closure, mm-hmm. but that are using the JVM. Yes. Is there, are you aware of like the interop story between um, Datomic and other JVM languages? Absolutely. So it, the Datomic is actually a JVM technology. They've made very, very sure in their API not to preclude any non-closure language. Of course, they've used Clojure themselves to build Datomic. Um, but you know, um, you can so, you know, there's a full Groovy API, or you can use the Java API um, from Groovy. There's a full Java API. Um, you know, when when you submit transactions and the transactions fail for some reason, they'll come back to you with an exception rather than some closure specific data structure, so that you can you know work with it from any of the JVM languages. Um, and so it's totally um, totally supported, but not as cool, obviously. <laughs> right. 
I know that's that's really good to know. Just if somebody gets curious and they want to go play, and they don't need to climb the first big mountain yes. <laughs> to get to the next cool one. I, I think uh, Kenneth, I think a lot of the examples on the atomic side are actually in Groovy. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, and and the kind of the console shell that you get as part of the distribution for just talking to your transactor is also a Groovy shell. I just wasn't sure from the docs, like. I didn't notice a Java API, you know, but I mean, I was down specific missions trying to like find the information I need. And yeah. and luckily I had some experience with Groovy Lake last year. So it wasn't even like a arms, you know, arms in the air. It was just like, oh, okay, cool. This is what's going on. Translate to closure and carry on. Indeed. Yeah. No, the, 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 the guys who put the atomic together have, have um, yeah, they've made um, extra effort to make sure not to exclude any, any other JVM languages. Okay. So now the atomic itself, has this idea of, of splitting up the, the reads and the writes, sort of like the, you know, the event store CQRS kind of models. Um, so you've got a, um, what do you call it? You, you mentioned a transactor. Now, the transactor is, is the part of the system that's responsible for writing to the database. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, basically, the transactor, which is the only independent process that you start, separate to your, you know, your own app processes, um, it's basically got two jobs. Uh, well, three if you include tracking, you know, how, how many licenses you've used. Um, right. the, the first is is transactions, which is to say processing writes and making sure they reach storage okay. And the second one is indexing. Um, and the, the writes are obviously completely synchronous and immediate, although you can do asynchronous writes from your, your processes. Um, and, of course, the indexing is completely in the background. Okay, so your, your client app like, says, cool, I want to update you know, or, or add a fact if I, if I use the atomic nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to update you know, this customer and I want to set the you know, name to, to Len. I send that, that update across to the transactor. Uh, transactor then makes sure that's um, stored, persisted to disk. And as far as I understand, Atomic's fully ASID compliant. So from a client point of view, I'm, I'm not going to get a successful response to that request until it's committed. Exactly. So, so the, the, you know, as I said before, there's the transaction log and there are the indexes. So when, when that transaction comes back um, as successful, you know for sure that it's in the transaction log, but it may not be in the indexes on disk yet um, because the indexing is asynchronous and happens in the background. But yes, you're right. It is fully asset compliant. Okay, cool. And then um, there's this concept of a peer. Perhaps you can just talk to us about like, what that means and how that works. Because I think that's one of the big differences I've seen with Datomic is that you don't just have this like tiny little library that you use to talk to the database. You actually kind of include like a, a part of the database within your app. It's called the peer, and 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 that peer does like a whole lot of awesome stuff. So maybe you can just take us through what it does. Sure. So so with um you know with other databases like Postgres and so on, you would use an, a client library like a JDBC or what have what have you. Um, and that is a true client in the sense that it's talking, you know, we're uh, using a network protocol to talk to a process over there. Um, in the Atomics world, though, your, your apps are actually part of the database because they perform a key part of what databases do, um, which is to say query. <clears throat> so the, 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 the third part, which you haven't mentioned yet, is the storage uh, part of the, of the, um, the Datomic system. Okay. So there's actually three parts in total. 
um, the transactor, which we've spoken about, which handles writes and indexing, storage, which is where everything is on disk, whatever you know, whatever that means in your system, um, and then finally there's the peer, um, and so the peer is a, a normal Java library that you include in your project. Um, and it, given sufficient configuration, knows how to talk to both the storage and to the transactor for your database. And what's key about this is that it actually um, it, it handles all of your queries within your app process. Um, and it, it knows how to talk to storage to get what it needs directly. Um, and it's actually, it actually makes for quite fascinating um, uh, kind of uh, mind-blowing revelations when you realize how fundamentally different your code um, uh, you know, becomes when you when you're able to think in that way. Um, could you give us some idea of what you mean by that? Yeah. So, so in say SQL, if you had a big list of things, let's say orders or or customers, say let's say you're doing a report on what customers have spent um, on a busy e-commerce site. So, in a SQL query, to make sure that you've actually got a consistent view on your data, you would have to select both which users you're talking about and do a whole bunch of crazy inner joins onto all of the data in the database to select out all of the, uh, you know, the associated statistics and reporting data. If you don't do that and you do it in separate queries, the, the needle might have already moved on what, what's true in your database. Right. Users may have made more orders you know, since you selected that list of users, which may have included or excluded them from the search criteria you have. Um, and so, you know, if you then went went ahead and looped through each of those users doing a kind of a details query, um, you may find that you've actually got inconsistent views on your data. Um, and this is not such a problem in small systems, but um, in bigger systems where your data changes all the time, um, it can be very, very hard to get a cohesive and clear picture of what's going on. But with Datomic, because you're actually querying against an immutable database, that is a particular point in time, always, even if it's the latest point in time, you are able to um, perform many queries against that database value without having to try and do it all in one go because that database is actually you know, immutable and it won't change out from under you. Uh, and because you can break your queries up, suddenly your query code and your database code is all about solving your problem domain rather than solving the, 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 the inherent problems in using a mutable database. Um, the code becomes a lot more composable, easier to read, easier, easier to reason about. It was something that, that I thought was one of the biggest differences between, say, Postgres and, and Datomic or, you know, any kind of relation database really was this idea that with, with Postgres, the concept of a connection in a database were really interchangeable in a way, like I'm yeah. connected to a database like in a Postgres world, whereas with Datomic, I've got this expensive resource, they, they call it connection, but Using the connection, I can get hold of a database. Now, a database in Datomic is quite a weird thing, just just coming in from the outside, because it's it represents a point in time view of like the the storage. I don't know how to say it properly, I guess. Um, but I, but I go to the connection and I can say, give me like kind of the latest version of all the data like now. And, and I get a, a handle to a database back, that database is, is, is an immutable thing. I can't, I can't change it. So in other words, if I, please correct me if I'm getting this right or wrong, if I go add a transaction to the database, I'll get a new database back. That's right. Yeah. So it's literally true that every transaction in the database creates a new database. 
So every transaction against a particular connection will create a new database associated with that connection. And in fact, if you want to go back in time, one of the ways that you can go back in time to say, I want a database for this particular point in time is to appoint to a particular transaction number. And, and it, it, it's, it's, this is, I mean, this is quite fundamental. And if you, if you get this, you get half of Datomic, I would say. Yeah. Um, you can actually, you know, in a long running process, say some sort of a worker process, you can take a particular database value and hold it in memory and you can hold it for years. As long as it's say, you know, the connection to the database stays up, as long as it can continue to talk to storage and all those good things, um, you can literally hold onto the database for years. No matter what happens to the database after that, it is literally immutable. You cannot change it. It cannot be changed um, under you. Um, and, and once you, you kind of, you know, you take that in and you start to realize that that's how your whole system can work, you know, that really starts to have a, 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 a powerful effect on how you, you, you write code um, and what you start, you know, what you worry about less and what you don't have to worry about at all. Yeah. I think Kenneth and I had this, this chat because um, we, we're building a web app and uh, the request comes into the web app. And of course, one of the first things you do is you, you get hold of a database so that you can start to to do some some things as you would in a web app. So let's say there's a, a post service. You've got some new data, new data. You, you grab a, a database and you, you run a transaction against it. Now, if you wanted to see that new data, you'd have to get a new database. That's right. And in, in fact, the Datomic transaction will return the newest database as of that transaction in its result. Yeah. So you, you'd have, and, and then you could have these like two databases in your in your web transaction. One which would be the old data before the insert, and the other one would be the data after the insert. That's correct. Wow, that's that is just amazing. I mean, that is that is something I've always wanted, um, but I've always had to like work around and to kind of create audit logs or, or whatever and at one point i became seriously interested in the whole event store cqrs kind of model and it seems like the atomic almost has that built in it, it pretty much does it is it is in in some very real ways it is essentially a generic a general or a generalized cqrs event store system um, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Rich Hickey, who designed this, and say it is a, a CQRS event system. There might be some fundamental reasons why it is not, but um, I certainly can't tell the difference. And we're certainly using it in that way. Right. I think if I have to go on a, a limb, having dabbled with CQRS a bit, is I guess one of the things is in the atomic one transaction can touch a lot of entities. Yes. In an event store, you'll have an an entry per like business event that just happened, and that would be like isolated to one aggregate route with its own set of stuff, which also makes it tricky if you want to update a bunch of aggregate routes in one sweep in a transaction. There, there you start bumping heads. At least in my experience with the with the event stores underneath and. With the Datomic stuff so far, it's amazing. You can just build up this one transaction that touches so many entities and then just go make this so or have it fail if it blows up with the asset compliance. Yeah, yeah so that, that that's one of the, um, the the beautiful things about the way they've um, architected the transactions is that you can actually build up a very complex, complete picture of how you want the database to look once this transaction is done. And key is that you can do it in one descriptive de declarative data set. 
Um, and then once you've got it all put together, you can actually do, um, using one, one function in the API, you can do um, a speculative database with it. So you can actually create an in-memory database, which doesn't touch the transactor or storage at all, but that acts as if you had transacted that data. And, you know, it, it would give you all the same exceptions that a real transaction would, you know, submitting a real transaction would. And key, it would act like a real database in terms of all of the usual queries that you can do. The, the, the only difference, of course, is that it's not actually persisted to disk. Okay. That... And that, that's insane. If you, if you need to do very, very complex business rule validation, um, and some of that, you know, is, is forces you to, to, to do so inside the transaction for whatever reason, because you need to, you know, it's part of the asset compliance thing, you, you can do that. You can write your own custom transactor functions, which, um, you know, to inspect the database and, and make decisions and throw exceptions if they fail. Um, and then you can use this this the speculative um, capability um, to have a look around before you commit. Is that what they call the what, what's it as if? Um, the, yeah, the as if yeah. database is what they call. A, the actual function is is with with yeah okay yeah. Right. So you can say like give me database as if I'd committed all the stuff, but don't, but don't really commit it. Just like kind of right. pretend like it's all committed, and then I can query it and have a look around and make sure everything's okay. I, I would imagine that's also super useful for testing. Massively useful and also really, really useful when you are debugging a critical production problem and you really, really need to see what would happen if you transacted this data, but you don't want to because, well, you're on your production system. Oh, wow. Okay. So you can go into production, grab a, a transaction that you think would you know, like mimic some sort of user problem or something. Or, or fix the thing that you need right, to fix, right. you know, in the next yeah, five minutes. Like run it against production as if it was real, but it's not really real. So you haven't actually broken anything yeah. yet. Okay, yes. that's super powerful. That is a really super powerful idea. It is, and and, and I've certainly done that. And in fact, um, another really cool way that you can use um, these with databases is you can actually chain them. So you can get a because because the the re, the return of the, of with the the with function right. is precisely the same as a real transaction. You actually get a database value, and you can use that database value in another with call. Um, and so you can actually build up pretty much um, you know toweringly complex um, business logic without ever actually touching storage until you're absolutely ready to. Um, the the limit really is your own your own creativity. Yeah, how onerous is that on the because you've got the peer linked into your your application, how onerous is that on the on the application itself to do that? Or is it? I mean, is, is there some sort of limited amount of stuff you can do in a speculative transaction? Or? So I believe the the, the real limitations actually um, have to do with real transactor transactions in terms of you know um, what your throughput to storage and that kind of stuff is. So if you're using DynamoDB. Um, you know, you've got a very real limit on how many writes you can do per second because you literally pay, you know, for that. Um, and so you have to you have to be careful about that. But in terms of um, building uh, as-if transactions in memory, the, there's no real limit. I mean, you're, all you're really doing is constructing, um, um, you know, particularly fancy closure immutable data structures in memory. Um, and you, you can, you'd, you'd have to do pretty crazy stuff and a lot of it to, to stress your, your app. Okay. Uh, that, that does make sense to me, yeah. So now you, you talk about um, the the storage layer backending into to Amazon's uh, DynamoDB. Are there 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 are other options? I know that we've run it up using the what they call Dev Storage, which I believe is just using 
kind of local file system almost as storage. Yeah. Is, is is that using HSQL or something under the covers or it's it's using H two, right. which may be HSQL, which you just yeah, mentioned. Yeah. So the, 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 there are a number of other storages, including SQL backed storages. I believe Couchbase is one. Um, there's one I'd never heard of before called InfiniSpan, which is a RAM based database, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, uh, yeah, you know, there's a pretty pretty complex and complete list. The one that I'm actually hoping to see, um, although I have no idea whether they'll ever do it or if they, you know if they're planning to do it, is go- one of Google Cloud's um, big you know big, kind big of table um, super big database. Yeah, big table or, or Google C- Cloud Storage or whatever whatever the, the, right, the name right. is. Um, because without it, you know, you're basically forced to provision your own storage if you want to be on Google Google's um, right. infrastructure. But um, we're looking at using uh, Datomic on top of Postgres, which I understand is is quite well supported. Absolutely, we we ran in po- on Postgres in production for a couple of years uh, before we switched finally switched to DynamoDB, and it works absolutely fine. Oh, okay. And how was the migration from one to the other, or was it really a, a no-brainer? It was a no-brainer. So the the nice thing about Datomic is because it's storage agnostic. You don't actually back up Postgres or DynamoDB, although you certainly could do that if you want to. You actually back up at the Datomic level. And so you can imagine um, having a transactor configured to work with um, Postgres and a separate transactor configured to work with DynamoDB. And all you'd have to do is to restore the database or back up the database from Postgres and restore it to DynamoDB. Okay. Datomic handles all of the all of the kind of the the middleware to the the storage itself, and I guess because that's immutable, like you could almost do that like live while it's running, right? No, um, restores are not something that it's you know it's, it's it's something you want to do against a live system because you're literally rewriting the entire route. Um, but backups you can you can backup over and over and over, and in fact we do we literally run continuous backups. You know, as soon as the backup stops, we start another one. Um, and the backups are, don't at, at all affect um, a running system because, um, well, they, they, they only affect the running system to the extent that they're reading from storage. Okay, so um, they don't they don't affect the the indexing or the transactor at all. Again, because it's immutable, you know, they'll just keep they'll just back up everything that's that's locked in time, um, and then you know as soon as the the current write is finished, they'll just back that one up as well or ignore it, you know, yeah, and catch yeah. it next time. Okay, that's super interesting. Now. I've seen two other like ways to access the database. One is that you can get a database showing the kind of differences between two points in time. Uh, like a, I think they call it since or something like that. You're talking about um, time constrained databases. So it, it, it actually it's really helpful um, when when trying to understand Datomic to to know what its fundamental data right. model is. So Essentially, everything, and I mean like literally everything except for some metadata for transactions, is stored as what, what are called datums, D-A-T-O-M. Okay. Um, and a datum is essentially just a tuple, a, a tuple being a, a fixed le- length vector um, of five or six, depending on how you count things. So the, the five things are, in order, entity, which is the thing to which you're 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 adding facts like a customer ID or something like that, or yeah, customer, a user, an OAuth configuration, okay. whatever. Um, um, so that's entity, and that's just a numerical ID which is linked to the time that the ID was created. Okay. Then there's attribute, which is the name for the value, which is the third one. So and that that controls things like what the type of the value is, 
how many um, uh, different values a particular entity can have. So, you know, users should only have one email address, but um, groups can have many users. So the cardinality. Okay. Um, and it also controls things like indexing and stuff like that. So that's three, EAV, entity attribute value. The fourth one is time, which is to say, um, you know, the link to the transaction that created this datum. Um, and every single datum in a datomic database is linked to a transaction, even the very first transaction, which sets up all the initial metadata. Um, and then the fifth one is whether or not, it depends now, so now we're talking about storage, whether or not this fact or this datum was asserted or retracted. So, you know, if you, if you look at making changes to a database when you remove things, you're actually writing a retraction to the database. You're saying this fact is no longer true. But we're not throwing that fact away. And so Datomic stores it in a simple Boolean to, to indicate whether this particular datum is a retraction or an assertion. So those are the five things. So um, if we speak about, you know, to come back to your question about since databases, all it really is, is a normal database value, which we've already spoken about, an immutable database value that is being run through a filter. And all we're doing is we're filtering that T, that time, um, based on some predicate that you've set. So if you say, give me a database that only shows things before, you know, midday yesterday, it's going to do what it usually does, <clears throat> which is to say to filter all the datums in the database, <clears throat> pardon me, but um, it's only going to return datums that match that time-based predicate to the, you know, to the, the layers further up, for example. Right, your right. Um, and, th and it's really cool because this, you know, you can write your own filters, arbitrary filters. You can, for example, write a filter that won't allow any entity to reach your query that doesn't, for example, relate to a particular user in your database. You know, and, and there, there's a banking um, startup called NewBank, N-U-B-A-N-K, in, I think it's Brazil, that have done exactly this with Datomic. They literally just tag every entity with the user ID, you know, person slash ID. Right. And whenever that particular user enacts a query on their system, they've got a very low-level filter that will only allow, you know, things from the database through if they match that user's ID. Um, yeah, so, so coming back to the time-based filtering, you've got two essential time-based filters one is since, and the other is as of. And they are they're basically, you know, mapped to um, things before a certain date and things after a certain date. And, of course, those are composable. So you could say, you know, give me things um, as of two weeks ago or no, uh, since two weeks ago and as of a week ago. A week ago. And that would give you a, a, like a one-week time slice of yeah, your data. So that would be to try and answer the question, like, what changed in that week or... Well, kind of. What it would actually do is give you, it would give all of the queries on, on which you, you know, you know what, which you run on that database, it would only give it things that happened in that time. Right. So if I had to say, list all of the users in the world right. in this database constrained to, uh, you know, the, the week before last, it's only going to list the users that happen to be created in that time because we're querying against, you know, the, yes, the, the, the yes. newly created entities in that time. If you wanted to see a set of changes, there's actually a slightly different database, which is called the history database, which you can actually, you know, pass a normal database into, including time constrained ones, which is where things start, you know, the top of your head starts to lift off. Um, and what this does is it gives you a slightly different view on the same data. Um, and all it really does is give you that, that fifth column, which is the added removed um, uh, uh, flag. And, and uh, you know, and what it will also do is obviously give you all of the retractions. 
So you can basically get a full audit trail for any entity in your system or any list of entities in your system. Um, you know, at, 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 at just by altering one function, basically one function call, mm. um, and that will give you a, a like a concrete list of yeah, changes. Yeah. I just want to go back. You you mentioned um, being able to add in this function that filters the database. Is that is that the since database or, or or is that just like part of the normal operation? I can say I want to see a uh, a database, but use this function to to filter out what appears in that database. Yes. See, so so since and as of are filters, and they're obviously part of the the, the built-in right. API, um, and so they basically take and return yes. the database. So they they would take the database you want to filter uh, along with some notion of what what your time yes. constraint is, and they would then return a database that is constrained in that fashion. But it's just but what you get is a database that you can query like you would query any normal database. And I've actually checked the entire Datomic API and ask myself, what would happen if I use a history database with this function? And every single one will do something sensible. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful design. That is very, very interesting. Um, you know, they have made history truly orthogonal to, to the rest of the query API. It's actually insane. Okay, so, so being able to provide that predicate, that's a very interesting idea. So let's say I've got a website where people log in and then part of like the that user's entity relates to, let's say, a lot of stuff in the system that they own. I, I could then yes. provide a filter on the database that then just see the stuff that the logged in user owns. So, you know, when I showed That's lists right. of stuff or, or tried to like have further operations on those things, it would only be um, on, on stuff that, that was kind of linked to, to that entity. To that particular user, yes. And, and what's nice about this is it allows you to keep all of that stuff out of your queries. And this is, and, and most importantly, it allows you to keep that stuff out of all of yes, your queries. Yes. So the simple show me everything I own list, that query is very easy, yes. right? You basically just, you've got a user ID, you pass that in, and you do a simple query linking to right. that user. But when you need to do really fancy, complicated stuff, like, you know, show me all the tags on this sub-entity that were made after yes. this date. Um, when you've got many constraints yeah, to solve, yeah. adding in the the entitlements layer into all of that can be really exactly, painful, yes. um, and and kind of muddle muddy the water. So by but by doing that stuff at the filter level, where the rule is simple and uniform, um, you know you can you can simplify your queries quite a bit. Like, like I said, the guys, the new bank guys, actually gave a, a closure conch talk on this stuff, and they they explained it probably far better than I am. Well, that's definitely something we must link to, and I need to go and, and look at that because we in Cloud Africa we we literally have this problem where you know, people can have access to a bunch of the servers of firewall rules. You know, there's a fairly complicated model yeah. underneath the user, um, and of course, as you're saying, I, you know, in the Postgres model, I've got to somehow propagate. This this user ID all over the place, or uh, where where I've gotten to now, and then that model is written in Go. Um, you have to come through some sort of API right. layer, where that API layer enforces the the fact that you're appearing against this user ID in all, at all times. Uh, but but it's quite an overhead, yes. and it's not easy. You have to do it by hand, of course, and and make sure that every every query exactly links back to the user. Of a nice, really nice idea to be able to say, "Give me a database," and in that database, it's really filtered out. Like you can just kind of carry on and say, "Give me a list of servers," and only get back a list of servers for that user. 
That's right. And so, so it's what, what, why it's valuable, I think, is because you go from um, a mistake um, in the old way. The mistake is that you, you forget to yeah, filter yeah. on the user and now, you know, Pete can see, see Dave's list. But with the filter way, the, the mistake is that Pete can't see Pete's <laughs> things because, the, you know, the, you're starting with, with a, a too, yes. per, too restrictive query. Um, you know, rather than too too permissive a query, it's a very real risk in multi-tenant systems, of course. Correct. Yes, I mean that's a that's a big thing that 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 uh, keeps me awake at night, actually. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so, so I, I must say there are drawbacks to doing the system. As soon as soon as you start to talk about some kind of shared content, then you know, then you very rapidly enter um, spit the you know spaghetti worlds again. Um, because now it's not so easy to model the direct one-to-one relationship with everything. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't. I, I certainly don't think that we've solved this in the most elegant way yet. Um, I still think about it often. But for now, you know, we, we're just using good old datomic relationships to to model this stuff, um, and it works and it's fine. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was thinking one way, maybe just to cement it with another example, and just to make sure I understand it right, is you can go. If an admin, like Ansa, like if you think at Cloud Africa, like an, an admin just says query list yes. of servers and gets everything and they can do their job. But when a user comes in, then somewhere higher up and you're somewhere where you handle the request, you just filter out the data because now you know it's a user and suddenly it's, a bit, it's still somewhere in your code that generates your view and does everything else. It's still just like, give me this list of servers and now the filter will have stripped it down. Just yeah, one. So, so one way to think about it, so we, we're all familiar with this notion of middleware in the web web stack, right? You have middleware to enjoy yes. your session, middleware to make sure that your, you know, your you know, A, Bs and Cs are right, that you're parsing JSON properly and all these good things. So the way, that, the way to think about this is it's middleware for your database, for the read side of your database. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so in fact, you know, it, we actually use middleware in our web stack with Datomic databases. So one of the things we do when processing requests is to associate a database value to the request data and so that all of the all of the queries against that database in that entire request, whether it's one or 50 million, um, they all happen against a consistent database without even having to think about it, without having, even having to say, oh, am I, you know, am I, do I have a consistent view here? The default assumption is yes, you do, which is pretty nuts if you're used to SQL ORMs. Very. It's like wrapping your entire uh, request with with like a transaction yes, and a read lock pretty much. on a or table. That... Actually, a read lock yes, on the entire database. Yes, there's no actual locking occurring, which is yes. Yeah, so it's it's very performant and quite lightweight, actually. Yeah. So so, so datomic databases. Once you start to understand how immutable data structures work, and it, I mean, it, you know, I'm not going to try and explain it now because I'm probably going to do it a really bad uh, job. Um, but it, well, let me try. It's basically a tree. It's a tree structure. Um, and, 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 you know, Richicki, when he first did this stuff, he actually tried many different permutations of how many branch, what the branching factor is. Um, and in closures data structures, the branching factor is 32. So you have a logarithmic 32 tree for all of your data structures. So when you make a change to an immutable data structure, you're not actually altering a value deep inside. What you're actually doing is creating a new tree, a new root, which points into the existing tree you already have and to some new leaf, new leaf node, which is your new bit of that, you know, data. So any pointer you had to an old root 
we'll see the old immutable, you know, immutable data structure without that new change linked in. But any pointed to that new root, we'll obviously see the data structure with the change applied. So that's how it does immutable data. And because it knows that you can't actually change these things, it's able to do this structural sharing. So it's immutable because it's immutable. It's a bit tautological, um, but it works and it works amazingly. So it, it, the, you get perform, performance benefits from this. One is RAM, obviously, because you're now actually doing structural sharing. There's no deep copies of all of your data. Um, and the other, of course, is that making a new um, data structure, a new you know, altered data structure is very, very quick because all you're actually doing is making a quick little pointer and a pointer to one or two uh, you know, new bits of information. Now, that's immutable data structures. Uh, Datomic is immutable data structures on disk. And that's kind of why it's so much more complicated than a simple set in memory is because it has to be on disk and it has to scale beyond what can fit on a single disk or in, in, in a single instance's RAM. But the same fundamental process is happening. There's a root and you're pointing to some new set of datums and a link to the previous transaction, which is where you know the previous set of datums were written. And the indexing process that Datomic does in the background is what makes those queries, which says, show me the now database um, performant. Because what it's actually doing is making an index of all the things that have been asserted and not since retracted, if that makes sense. So all, all the things that have been written or said, you know, um, added, and they haven't since been removed um, after that point. That's basically your now database. Um, yeah, so that, again, that's why, why, da why databases are cheap is because it's just a pointer, essentially. Does that make sense? Did I explain that, uh, that okay? I'm, I'm following well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I've been using it for a long time and it still blows my mind every time yeah. I talk about it. Um, yeah, maybe the, the, one of the last things we can get into is in in SQL, I come along and I, I use, uh, what do they call it? DDL, data definition language, which is just a fancy way of, of saying create table, right? Um, and and to, to set up a schema, does Datomic have this notion of like structured schema data or is it more like Mongo where I can just kind of go nuts and, and do whatever I like? Um, so the answer is yes. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Probably it does that. <laughs> um, and the reason why, it, it has that structured notion, which right. SQL has, but it only structures certain things. So um, what it does structure is how values relate to entities. Okay. And so by that I mean um, user email you know, a user has an email address. So what, what can we say about that, that relationship of that email address value to that user? Well, one, he can only have one at a time. Um, so the cardinality for that particular entity is an, on, on, for emails is one rather than many. And two, the value has to be unique for all user email addresses at this particular attribute in the database. So those, those are two examples of, um, you know, and the third, of course, is that it's a string rather than a Boolean or an integer or something. So those are the three things that you have to specify for attributes in Datomic. Note that it doesn't specify how you compose attributes. So nowhere in Datomic's database does it say you have to use an email address with a, a password and a full name and an avatar image. That, that is left completely up to you in, in kind of application space to deal with you know, to either enforce or not enforce as you see fit. And so because of that, 
as long as you've got your attributes specified, um, and, and you could do this, although I don't recommend it, you could make one um, data type, um, you know, with one, one attribute for each data type in your database and just use that to put stuff onto entities without actually trying to name them. Can I just interrupt you there? What do you mean by that? Could you give us an example? Sure. Uh, so you, you could, say, make um, an attribute saying integer and um, give it cardinality many and no indexing at all. And then whenever you wanted to put an integer value onto an entity, you could just put it in the integer blob. Datomic won't stop you from doing something silly right. like that. And it is silly, yes. very, very silly. Um, the other key thing is that let's say that I've got schema in my database for users and for products and for orders. There's nothing in Datomic that says that I can't put order values and product values and user values all on a single entity. You know, it, it doesn't try to tell me how to how to model my data. It only tells and me by, by by entity. If just I, I'm thinking of an entity as a, a kind of primary key or just as an ID. As an, an ID, so so the, the, the so so kind of entity number one hundred, which has all the attributes for a product and a customer and an order. Yes, you could totally do that. Oh. Atomic doesn't stop you from doing that. Basically, it's up to you and your app process to do that. So so let's let's figure out why this is valuable. So first of all, the example we we said before about um, filtering an entire database for a user. It'd be very hard to write a simple filter if I had to make unique attributes for every entity type to specify that this belongs to a user. For example, um, bank account slash user, um, profile slash user, address slash user. If I had to make all of these little attributes to relate back to the user, um, my filter would get pretty crazy to write because I'd have to you know, handle all of those cases in my filter code. But if I just made one attribute... Um, for example, owner slash ID yeah. or something, and use that same attribute on all of the entities that that user creates, whether it's an address, a bank account, um, you know, a transfer between bank accounts, whatever right. the case may be, then writing that filter is dead easy. As long as the entity I'm querying can, you know, I can find that the entity has an, a, 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 an, an owner slash ID yes. attribute and that value matches this user, we're okay, good. That, that... And so that's why Datomic doesn't constrain how you compose right. attributes. It only constrains the rules for a given attribute. That makes perfect sense. And that's radically different from a relational model. Exactly. And that's why I said yes, because that's essentially what MongoDB gives you, right? It's, it's document storage or graph-like yes. storage, a good like databases. And that's what allows you to do that with Datomic. You can, and, and the other cool thing, of course, is that you can do um, recursive relationships. Um, and in fact, the query language supports recursive rules. So you can do order of magnitude or, 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 or nth degree queries and things like that. It's pretty nuts. What, what do you mean by an order, like a recursive query? So, so the, the, the sample database that they give you is, a, is a, an excerpt of the Music Brains database, which is like a massive open source database of all the music right. data we have, CD releases yeah, yeah. and things like that. Um, and they basically took like a 20-year segment out of that and, and modeled it in Datomic. So you can do things like show me everyone who's recorded with Paul McCartney directly. Okay. Then show me everyone who's recorded with someone who's recorded with Paul McCartney directly. So that's second order. Then show me everyone who's recorded with somebody who's recorded with somebody who's recorded with uh, Paul okay. McCartney. Okay. Recursive queries. Now you can, you can express that query using the same set of rules and essentially just providing a recursion yes. okay. to your query. 
and it would be able to you know just keep satisfying that until it you know until it bottoms out at, at you and know, that recursion limit is something that data log like supports directly or I I think so. So I know that they support recursion limits in their their pull API, which is something a bit different. I would have to go and review the code yeah, yeah. To, to to give you like the the true and correct answer. But I know that there is a recursion limit somewhere in in the system. It may be in the application code, right. maybe um, in in the in the actual query language. I'm not. I can't remember right now. Um, but but coming back to your 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 data defin data definition language yeah. thing. Um, the, the the key thing about putting schema into your database is that you're actually just writing normal transactions in the same way that you would write transactions for actual data in your database. And and that's because schema is itself datomic data. So you can actually query your schema. You can actually put other metadata on your schema attributes. So, you know, one common one is as your database grows and changes and your app changes, you actually re retire schema. You stop okay. using it. And so you can do things like put a put a marker on schema saying this is deprecated. Is, is that handled by Datomic, or is that just a flag to the application? No, that's all. That's all you. You can just you can just walk up to that entity and say, hey, you know, write the the the, the schema slash deprecated boolean, which you would have to define yourself. Yes, first. of course. You know, you would have to actually make your own schema for that. Um, another interesting use of of transactions that we've done. Whenever we have a known user in the yeah. database in, in, in our web session, so you, you're logged in, we automatically tag every single transaction with the signed-in user. And this is kind of right-side middleware in the same way that we have read-side middleware with filters. Um, and what that allows us to do is whenever we need to go and figure out why something happened rather than see what happened, we can, we can, you know, we can go and figure out who did it. Um, and if it's a normal non, you know, non um, admin user, then it's almost certainly a bug in our code. Um, but if it is an admin user, then we can go and figure out what the exception, you know, the exceptional business situation was that that caused that situation right. to be. And that has definitely saved our bacon a couple times. I can tell you. That is a truly fascinating idea that on any entity you can have really any attribute that you've described. So yeah, anything you that's like. That's a true, truly, truly no constraint idea. Yeah, so you don't have to, um, like in a relational model, I'd, I'd immediately have to make a join and have foreign key kind of relationship. There. But here yeah. I can just add in, like you say, the owner ID or whatever to whatever entity is being touched by that transaction. Wow, that's that's pretty special. Yeah, and we, we use it in a couple of ways. So we, we've got an, um, a, a content management system on our, on our, right. our platform. Um, and one of the requirements of that is I good old internationalization. And so we've actually just used um, kind of like an overlay method um, where, um, you know, we, if an entity has the meter slash translations key, then it has translations in other yes. languages. And we actually use all the same attributes to store the, the, the translated values. Um, but that the entity that has the translations, for example, would have the same slash title yes. attribute. Um, but the value would be in whatever the language is, and that entity that has the translations would have then a meter language um, value, which says, okay, this is in Italian or whatever. And that allows our, our rendering code, it only has to say, you know, make sure this is translated to the right um, um, language for this user, and then it makes all the same content retrieval calls against the, the data that it's got. And so it doesn't actually know that it's working with translated data when it's doing its rendering. Um, and that would, I mean, that's like 20 lines of, of um, closure, well, maybe, maybe a bit more, maybe 50 lines of closure in Datomic code that gives us that system. And we, again, we can extend it to any entity in our database. We can internationalize users. We can internationalize 
um, you know, any any entity in our database at all that way. Hmm. That's a that's a very powerful concept. Yes. Well, okay. Kenneth, are you still uh, alive, or have you your mind exploded? Yeah, I'm just busy cleaning up the mind of my screen here, <laughs> picking my drawer up off the floor. <laughs> like it's, I think it's a, it's a way more real for me now than that we've been dabbling with it and experimenting and actually building data and having started solving some problems with it. This stuff is absolutely fascinating. So, but I'm curious, Robert, if there's like a uh, almost like the biggest or most useful paradigm shift that you went through as I mean, you've been using this stuff for three years now, like what's really, how's it fundamentally changed the way um, you're building uh, like applications or interacting with your data? Does that make sense? If that's even a question. Yeah. So I think I get what you're trying to say is like, what, what's, what's the main thing that's different be before and after, I guess, closure or immutable data or functional programming or one of what, you know, insert your, your, um, you know, buzzword here. Um, and, and I think I would say yes. it's learning to program with data rather than objects um, and thinking in terms of object-oriented, you know, classes and, and, and encap you know, all the typical OOP things. When, when coding things now, I almost certainly will start, you know, in a closure repl and write just some plain old data, you know, what would look, you know, look like JSON to the, the uninitiated, although it's a much nicer JSON, let me tell you. Um, and just think in data, just write, you know, structure some thoughts, you put down what I think we're going to need, um, you know, make sure that it captures all the concerns that we have, even if, um, you know, and again, it's just data. So there's no, it, it's very easy to make data. You don't have to write any unit tests for it. You don't have to, um, uh, you know, run crazy software in the background. You're just writing data. Um, and once you've got some data that you think models your problem uh, or the solution to the problem you're trying to solve, then you start to, you know, write functions that take that data from where it is to where it needs to be. So, for example, um, in a content management system, to, to make ease of capture easy, you allow people to capture things once and reuse them in wherever, wherever they want to use it. So, you, you, you know, you, you give them a place to put the, the like, the, the metadata things, and then you give them a way to, to refer to that metadata wherever they need to inject it as, a, as a, like a contrived example. But when your rendering layer actually gets that data, it needs everything to be denormalized. It doesn't want to have to follow those references around. You'd rather want, you know, you want all that data kind of prepared um, um, so that it, it's fast for the rendering layer rather than fast for the content um, person. Does that make sense? Is that, is that example clear enough? Yeah. So, so now yes, you're starting yes. to write functional code, which is to say, you know, or pure, purely functional code, which is to say taking data in and returning data out to go from the easy for content people to the easy for rendering layer um, uh, code. Um, and because you're writing simple, pure functions against normal data, you're solving the problem kind of as purely as possible. You're thinking directly in terms of your domain. You're thinking directly in terms of how you're going to solve the core problem. Um, and only once you kind of, you, you've done that and you've kind of done your, your, your thinking work, do you then start to worry about the IO, you know, the input-output stuff. Um, and this is kind of, um, you know, I've really internalized this principle of, uh, of functional apps being, um, you know, having having a functional core, a pure functional core, immutable core with IO pushed to the boundaries. So, you know, you would write to disk or, or render to the web request or render to the screen kind of as late as possible um, and work in terms of pure functions and data um, for the rest of the time. 
So, you know, and, and, and you, you, you can do a lot of closure doing functional first, thinking in terms of the transformations first, and you'd be totally fine. But I've found over and over and over, think in data first and think in terms of transformations on that data uh, second. Um, because data is, data is ridiculously easy to copy. It's ridiculously easy to read. It's, it's ridiculously easy to reason about. Data, data, data all the way. Does that answer your question? You know, thanks. That it, yeah. I guess I was looking more for like an atomic hotness, but but I think you. you... Well, uh, let, let me tell you, this is this. I, I live this principle because datomic. If you look at datomic's APIs, it's data, data, data all the way. The query language is a data structure. Transactions <laughs> are a data structure. Um, fetching data out of the database. So once you've queried a list of entities, and now you want to do like lateral walking, you want to get like all the metadata following, for example, um, several relationships. Um, you know, a couple layers deep. The way that you describe that, what they call a pool spec, you describe it as data. It's, it's, you, you think in terms of data all the time. You're describing yes. your transformations as data. You're describing the data you're actually putting in the database as data structures. Um, it's, you, you, once you internalize this working with data first, you know, the, the, the other key thing about that, of course, is, is tools. And if you've, got a, if you've got a very small set of primitives to work with in terms of your, your primary kind of thinking space, an enclosure that's a very, very small, small set of primitives, four collections and, you know, I don't know, uh, I guess 10 different um, scalar values, you, you get really, really hella good at manipulating them in your editor. Um, and, you know, happily, Clojure uses those same data structures to, to do its code as well. Um, and so, you know, I can whiz around and, and solve problems and, 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 and write my solutions and my thinking down very quickly in, in terms of data that I can actually process with code. Um, and that's because I've, you know, again, I've, I've learned to use the tools very well. Um, and, um, you know, I've forced myself to think as simply as possible. And you can't, you can't get simpler than data. No, definitely. That's one thing that I'm going through that transition of actually yeah. putting the data first in the screen and not building like 10 layers of indirection and wrapping and trying to push it so far back behind the screen that yeah. you can never, ever reach the raw thing again. <laughs> and it's, it's a big shift. It really is a big. It's shift. a huge shift, and it, it's going to take some time. And you, 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 you need to be like be tremendously patient with yourself. But you know, it, 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 it pays off, and it pays off big time. Um, you, you're so used to as an object-oriented programmer hiding the data away and thinking in terms of you know, um, and APIs essentially. Um, but you, you'd be surprised. Um, and I'd be very, very happy to show on a screencast, or a, you know, we can maybe do a hangout sometime. Um, and I'd be, be very happy to take like a typical. Um, kind of rails driven approach to rendering a view say um and then you know doing it the closure way where we where we make it as data driven as possible um it's it's quite fun to to kind of work work the example through and see see what changes yeah Look, come in for fun. that i'd love to do that no, but, but <clears throat> other than that i don't think i've got any more questions like i just had such a good time listening like just thanks for the good questions, Lynn, and thanks for the great answers, Rob. This is fantastic. Um, I'm I'm just uh, absorbing everything. I think just trying to talk it through with you has given me this whole new insight into in, into how to model entities. Really, yeah. That that idea you've got about every request comes in just tags the transaction with uh, you know the the logged in user ID has really blown me away. Yeah. And I must say, as, as somebody who's written a 
a gem for Rails specifically for auditing, it's quite of a nightmare getting all that metadata in place so that you can tag what happened when. This this well, well, is really well, slick. you know writing all of the uh, the the database updates is one thing, but then you know trying to actually write sensible queries as well that actually tell you what the hell happened afterwards is also um, quite quite a task. Yep. No more absolutely no parsing log files. I can't tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. So, so there's actually a new toy in the Closure world, which you guys may have seen, <clears throat> which is coming in Closure 1.9. Yes. Uh, um, and this is this new Closure spec thing. Yes, yes. We've definitely got to dig into that. So you, you're coming back on the podcast yeah. at some point. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to brush up on it and figure out what the hell it actually is and how to use it, how to use <laughs> it well. We were in the same but, place. But the one yes. thing that I could see um, right <laughs> away in spec is that you know, Rich is now starting to bring datomic things back into the language. Um, so it's it's a very exciting time for closure. What do you mean by that? So like the atomic things back into closure? Yeah. So 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 spec is essentially a data description language. So you might use this in, as a way to specify contracts for your function. Right. So the inputs need to satisfy all of these constraints. Are you saying those and, are then, and, those are then similar it, to the the atomic str- um, schemas? <clears throat> Well, well, sort of. So, so the atomic, as I said earlier, doesn't impose constraints on how you compose right, attributes. Yes. In the same way, closure spec actually forces you to define how you compose keywords separately to how keywords behave. So you, you are in spec, you are forced to say an email spec is a string that matches this regular expression. And separately, you are forced to say a user is a composition of the email spec the, the full name spec and the avatar spec say. Right. Whereas in a in a library like prismatic schema, you can actually just do all of that in a single map like definition. Yes. Um and, and this is a you know this is something that that there was a decision they made in Datomic where they said we only um spe- you know specify how attributes work and we don't specify aggregates or key collections. Yes, at yes, all. okay I'm not and now following obviously they, you, yeah. they, they've brought that distinction into the language as well. Um, and if you go and look at what some people are doing with spec already, you can see it paying off. Hmm. And I'd be happy to come back and talk about it sometime once I've gotten my head yeah, around it. I think yeah, to, to through the tutorial as well because it's, it's it is quite something. Yeah, there's a great reason. Sorry, <laughs> there's a great reason. Cognicast episode on the closure spec stuff, and I think that can also oh, the one where Rich introduces it. Yeah, I've only listened to that about five times. Yeah, I'm still trying to follow half of the things he says. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just queue it up again. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, anything else we needed to cover that's important, guys? Uh, nothing from my side. I was just happy to answer all of your questions and to you know to introduce Datomic uh, again. I think. Uh, I, I would highly recommend anybody who's already in the JVM space. Uh, I pretty much think you should stop what you're doing and take a look right now because it's almost certainly going to solve um, a whole world of hurt you may already find yourself in. Um, and if you're not in the JVM space, maybe this will will um, encourage you to try it out and um, try some closure on for sites at the same time. Well, well on that, <clears throat> is there a quick and easy um, way for people to get started with Datomic? That you could recommend. There are a couple. So there's the one um, way to get familiar with the query language is a website called learndatalogtoday.org, and I'll we'll obviously give, put that in the show notes. Um, there's no kind of datomic book yet. Um, so you know the, the the guidance there is um, you know if you if you're a book learner, um, you're a little bit out of luck. There are some incredibly gr- good uh, videos provided by the datomic guys themselves. 
and it's essentially um, you know a nicely edited down um, uh, uh, in you know instructor-led training that they did. Um, and I'll happily provide the link to that as well. And the nice thing about those videos is it's actually given by one of the primary um, implementers of Datomic. He's certainly the guy who's who's most familiar with the code. Um, and he takes you through a very, very cohesive and clear, you know, logical sequence of the whole system. Um, and I think, so, you know, and, and there's obviously good old, you know, try it out yourself and do stuff, um, you know, in, on, on your own machine you know, and try to model things. Um, I can't recommend doing that enough. Um, and and finally, there's there's a couple recipes which um, I contributed to the closure cookbook, um, which you know very 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 bare bones and um, show you the, the absolute basics of getting started. Oh, thank you for those. I've used them already. Great. I'm glad they they were helpful. No, def definitely a good uh, reference. And and as you said, the training videos by Stu uh, are just fantastic. I've I've worked my way through them, and it's it's been a very worthwhile journey. Absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming out on this cold night and chatting with us. It's been super awesome, man. Absolutely my pleasure. I look forward to coming back. Fantastic. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. And before we wrap up, um, does uh, Lynn, do you have any picks? Rob, do you have any picks? So I do, and they're completely unrelated to anything we've already dis discussed. Um, so the first one is um, it's just two keywords, learning mindset. Um, and I think this is super, super valuable for anybody who's taking on a completely new paradigm, especially, you know, if you're coming from, from OO and you're coming into FP, you can get disheartened because it is very, very different. Um, and so uh, basically I've got this um, reading list, which a guy, another guy has compiled, which has got some really good stuff. And the first book on his list is this book, Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she basically, she's done like actual science on this stuff. Um, and there's two basic ways to think about um, how your brain works. One is learning mindset, which is this idea that you can always learn and grow and change. And the other, other is the fixed mindset, which is, you know, obviously the opposite that things, you know, your intelligence is fixed and, and all these kinds of things. Um, and no, no guesses as to which one I prefer and which one I think is better. Um, but it's a, just a really nice way um, to kind of think about how you learn and how you approach problem solving and all these kinds of things. So that, that's my first pick. And my second pick is Lego. Remember Lego? Yeah, Lego. Don't, don't know when last you played with Lego, but if yes. you know, no matter how long ago it was, play play with some more. It's loads of fun. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. I I think it was last Christmas. I bought me and Michelle some different Lego Star Wars one, techniques one. I was quite happy to my first techniques set. Uh, yeah, it's I've, awesome. I've got just about the entire pirates collection, um, and I'm busy busy reconstructing the big pirate oh, nice. ship at the moment. It's great fun. Oh, no, that's awesome. Yeah, and then I'm also pretty <laughs> pickless uh, tonight. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I guess with that, uh, we can wrap up and, and say goodnight. So thanks again, thanks, Robert. Robert and, thanks, uh, guys. Thanks. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZA Dev Chat podcast, and we'll see you next time.